Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Optimizing Treatment Selection and Side Effect Management in BRAF Mutant Melanoma is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity entitled Optimizing Treatment Selection and Side Effect Management in BRAF Mutant Melanoma. I'm Jeff Weber. I'm a medical oncologist, and I'm deputy director at the Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center here at uh, NYU Grossman School of Medicine in New York City. Uh, we have a couple of disclaimers, and this indicates that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. And here is my personal uh, financial disclosure information. And here are the learning objectives for today. Upon completion of this activity, our participants should be better able to assess the latest clinical data for doublet and triplet targeted therapy and immunotherapy combinations to optimize treatment selection for and clinical management of patients with BRAF mutant melanoma. Participants should be better able to integrate combination targeted therapy and immunotherapy approaches for the treatment of those patients with BRAF mutant melanoma in order to optimize outcomes. And finally, they should be able to incorporate knowledge of safety profiles of combination BRAF MEK inhibitors and immunotherapy to identify and manage treatment related side effects in patients, again, who have BRAF mutant melanoma. So, first, let's talk about combination approaches in advanced melanoma. There are quite a few potential genetic targets in melanoma. This analysis, which was published, oh, I'd say three or four years ago by Nick Hayward, uh, BRAF is by and far the most common mutation in melanoma, accounting for between 40 and 50% of all patients. But there's also a fair amount of patients who have NRAS mutations, maybe 10, 15%. NF1, maybe another 10%. In the mucosal melanomas, we see KIT exon 9 and 11 mutations. We see GNA11 and GNAQ mutations in uveal melanoma. There are very common deletions in CDKN2A, and again, mutations in CDK4. So there's quite a uh, diverse genetic landscape in melanoma, many of which are potential driver mutations. But of course, the most important ones and the ones that we've heard the most about is BRAF mutations. BRAF mutations, which tend to center around the 600 and 601 amino acid, are driver mutations, that is, they are able, when mutated, to drive the growth, proliferation, and metastasis of melanoma along the now familiar MAP kinase pathway, which goes from binding of some factor to a, uh, a membrane-bound receptor, which then phosphorylates RAS, which then in turn phosphorylates RAF, which comes as ARAF, BRAF, and CRAF, which then phosphorylates MEC and ERK, and then makes its way to the nucleus to promote uh, growth, proliferation, metastasis, and activation of melanoma cells. And you can intervene at various places along the pathway. Obviously, you can specifically block mutated BRAF. We have bemorafenib, dibrafenib, and encorafenib, three approved drugs. And then further down the pathway, you can block MEK. And now this is not mutated MEK. This is normal MEK. And we have drugs like cobametinib, trametinib, and binametinib that can block not only at the mid part of the pathway, but further down the pathway to hopefully do a better job of suppressing proliferation 
survival, invasion, and metastasis. One of the first combination studies that tested a BRAF plus MET combination was the so-called COBRIM study. This was cobametinib and bemorafenib. And this again was a very nice one-to-one -one randomized study over 500 patients or approximately 500 patients who received either the combination of bemorafenib, the BRAF inhibitor with cobametinib, the MEK inhibitor versus bemorafenib plus placebo, which was then the standard FDA approved treatment for metastatic melanoma. And this was, again, treatment until progression, unacceptable toxicity or withdrawal. So it was potentially a long treatment and progression-free survival assessed by the investigator was the primary endpoint. Well, I think you'd agree that the combination was clearly superior to single-agent bemorafenib in terms of progression-free survival with that nice hazard ratio of 0.58. And overall survival with almost as nice a hazard ratio of 0.7, reflecting a 30% decrease in the risk of dying over time which was maintained over the first couple of years of the study, which again, in part, led to the approval of bemorafenib-copametinib as treatment for metastatic melanoma. The long-term progression-free and overall survival data from this study are indicating that over time, while the curves for the combo stay apart from the single agent, they tend to move together as time goes on toward five years, and only about 15% of patients are free of progression at five years, although the median progression-free survival clearly superior at 12.6 to 7.2 months. If you look at survival, the curves do a nice job of staying apart over time up to five years, and it looks like about 30, 31% of patients will be alive and hopefully doing well five years from starting BRAF plus MEK combination, bemorafenib and cobamandib. And again, it became clear early on that one of the most important factors associated with doing better or worse with combination BRAF-MEC therapy was disease burden as evidenced by LDH level. And having a normal LDH means at five years, 43% of patients are alive. A very modest 16% of your LDH is elevated, reflecting aggressiveness of tumor and tumor burden. COMBI-D was the next study. This, of course, was another large randomized study over 900 patients, and this was dabrafenib and trametinib, the BRAF-MEC drugs, versus dabrafenib alone, which then was an FDA-approved drug. And uh, this, again, was a very large study. Uh, 900 were screened, over 400 were treated, and again, you were treated until progression, intolerability, or refusal, and in COMBI-D, the data for overall survival, which was the endpoint of that study, looked very favorable. Again, with relatively early follow-up at two years, a very significant difference in survival with a nice hazard ratio of 0.75, meaning the combination better than single agent with a 25% reduction in the risk of death. Then on the heels of that study, which was a moderate-sized study over 400 patients, came the larger randomized phase three study over 700 patients who got dabrafenib and trametinib. Again, the early on, the first approved drug was vemorafenib, so that was the standard. And this, again, was a one-to-one -one randomization with survival as the primary endpoint. And at the second interim analysis of survival, this was clearly called a positive study. Uh, there's no question that there was improvement in overall and progression-free survival. If you look at all patients, pooled together with dabrafenib and trametinib. Looking at progression-free survival, you do a little better than what we saw in that prior study, but it's only about 19% in five years. 
and again, if you look at progression-free survival by LDH, if you have LDH at or below the upper limit of normal, you're at 25%, but it drops to 8% progression-free survival with an abnormal LDH. And again, looking at overall survival, you can do fairly well with, again, about a third of the patients alive in five years in both COMBD and COMBV. But again, if you have normal LDH, you're going to do better than if you have an elevated LDH. And if you look at the patients who have a normal LDH and few, meaning fewer than three disease sites, more than half of them are alive at five years, which again is a reflection of tumor burden, which determines the outcome significantly with almost all BRAC-MEC combinations. And again, if you think about who gets the most benefit, if you look at the patients with LDH of twice upper limit of normal or more, those patients do very poorly with PFS in five months. But look at the patients who have a normal LDH and less than three organ sites, 24-month median PFS with a response rate of 83% and a CR rate of 42%. Those are the best actors. Those are the patients who are going to do the best with almost any BRAC-MEC combination, although these are data specifically for the pooled combination from COMBI-D and COMBI-V. And finally, the third combination that came along was encorafenib and binometinib, and the Columbus study initially assessed the progression-free and overall survival for encorafenib plus binometinib versus just encorafenib versus the then standard of care, femorafenib. And again, if you look at the initial data with modest follow-up in the range of two years published back in 2018, Looking at progression-free survival or overall survival, clear, nice difference with a hazard ratio for overall survival of 0.61, a 39% reduction in the risk of dying. If you get encorafenib plus binometinib, the combination, versus the then standard bemorafenib alone with a p-value of 0.0001. In the long-term follow-up of that Columbus study of encorafenib and binometinib, Interestingly, although the combo clearly starts out higher in terms of survival, the curves to some degree will come together of encorafenib-binometinib or encorafenib alone, although there was the potential for crossover. But clearly, versus just vemorafenib alone, either is grossly superior without question. You'd rather be on the combination, in my view, than vemorafenib or encorafenib alone. And again, if you compile all the data from phase three trials of BRAF-MEC combinations, the hazard ratios for progression-free survival are amazingly consistent. They go from 0.67 to 0.56 to 0.58 to 0.51. Very impressive, consistent data for a superiority of progression-free survival for combination BRAF-MEC versus BRAF alone, usually vemorafenib. And for overall survival, again, amazingly consistent hazard ratios of 0 0.71, 0 0.69, 0 0.7. And for Encobini, 0.61 actually somewhat the best survival, although that was the most recently done study. Again, if you think about the doublets, how do you choose between them? And Dibrafinib, Trimetinib, Vemorafinib, Cobimetinib, and Encorafinib, Vinimetinib are all attractive combination regimens. They differ by the number of pills, dibrafenib, trimetinib, the fewest number of five, and carafenib, binometinib is 12 pills a day. Um, there's inflexibility regarding meals with dibrafenib, trimetinib, uh, a little bit less inflexibility with memorafenib, cobimetinib, and great flexibility for encarafenib, binometinib. 
So it is a bit rigid with respect to take, taking the drugs before or after food for dibrafenib, trametinib, a little less rigid for some of the others, and no rules for encorafenib, binimetinib. And there's flexibility with dose reductions for ENCO and BINI because you have so many pills, less flexibility for dibrafenib and trametinib because you have fewer pills. In looking at an idea that arose in mice, which is that you could um, give intermittent BRAF MEC inhibition, which in a very nice article in uh, Nature back in, I think, 2017 or 2018, it was suggested that if you gave a mouse intermittent BRAF MEC inhibition, it worked much better than just continuous BRAF MEC inhibition. And this was tested in a cooperative group study. Uh, Alan Agassi was the principal investigator. This was published in Nature Medicine. And unfortunately, giving intermittent BRAF MEC starting with your survival from eight weeks into treatment versus giving discontinuous BRAF MEC no difference in survival, median of 29.2 for each, the most overlapping survival curves I've ever seen, albeit in a small study, only a couple of hundred patients. But again, it did not appear that the mouse rule of intermittent, the superiority of intermittent BRAF-MEC applies to humans. So again, men are not mice, and what happens in a mouse is not always gonna happen in a person. A lot of attention has been paid to the activity of BRAF-MEC combinations in brain metastases, and you can see a pretty impressive response rate. And here we see the use of bemorafenib in treatment-naive and refractory brain met patients. You clearly get a higher response rate in patients who are not previously treated with what looks like a response rate in the range of 50% in the brain, very impressive. Less response rate in those previously treated, but still pretty significant. And again, if you look at the progression-free and overall survival, though, it is not as good as with those without brain metastases. Your median PFS, whichever way you do, whether it's previously treated or not previously treated, it's only about four months, very unimpressive. And if you look at the overall survival, instead of the median survival of 22 to 32 months, seen with BRAF-MEC combinations in extracranial disease, your median is only about nine months, whether you're previously treated or not with BRAF-MEC combinations. So again, not that impressive. And if you look at dibrafenib and trametinib, this was the CONVMB study in those with brain mets. This was a more extensive study where you had multiple cohorts, either no symptoms without prior therapy, asymptomatic with prior therapy, so those were the first two cohorts, all of which was in patients who had the B600E mutation, or patients who had other mutations who were asymptomatic, or patients who were symptomatic and generally required steroids. You figure that last group would probably do the worst, but in fact, with the use of dibrafenib and trametinib, if you look at the waterfall plots, the cohort A is the most common one, which was asymptomatic, no prior local treatment. You get a very nice response rate. Look at that outstanding waterfall plot. And you got good responses, even in those who were symptomatic and were on steroids, which was cohort D, and even in those with cohort C who had non-B600E disease, so very impressive. And if you look at the response rates across the board, they're actually pretty good. They're anywhere between 44 and 65%. The biggest cohorts, of course, were the cohort A with asymptomatic patients, no local treatment. Very nice, 58% response rate. Disease control, again, very impressive, 79%. And you saw some CRs, but mostly partial responses. And duration of response, median was about six months, 12 months for those who 
were not necessarily were previously treated and were still asymptomatic. And again, fairly impressive data uh, suggesting that there was clear benefit to those with brain metastases who received dobrafenib and trametinib. And if you look at the survival data, though, it is definitely not, or the progression-free survival, it's not as good as those who had extracranial disease only who were seen in the COMBI-D and COMBI-V trials. If you look at the biggest cohort, cohort A, your median PFS is only 5.6 months, which is quite modest, as opposed to 10 or 11 months, which is what you see with extracranial disease. And even though uh, you had a high response rate at 58%, median survival is nowhere near what you see with extracranial disease. As opposed to 25.6 months, it's only 10.8 months for those who are asymptomatic in the largest cohort A. So again, yes, you can see regression, but no, you do not do as well as if you have extracranial disease. And if you look at the real-world experience with dobrafenib and trametinib in those with brain metastases who were not on a clinical trial. It was a multi-center trial which collected data from non-protocol patients. If you look at the uh, survival, again, median's about nine months, which is not that much different than what you saw in large trials. And the median PFS is a little better, interestingly, at 5.3 months. But again, most patients eventually progress. And carafinib and bitumetinib has not been subjected to a large study in brain metastases, but it had a small study in something like 30 patients. And it suggests that if you had prior BUFMEC inhibitor or not, you could still have a finite response rate in the 30% range in the CNS in patients who were asymptomatic. Well, in oncology, as you know, if we are successful in the metastatic mode, we always think could you apply this to an earlier stage of disease and would it be more impressive and more effective? And of course, uh, dobrafenib and trametinib has been in a randomized adjuvant study. It was a very well done study called COMBI-AD. 870 patients were randomly allocated who had stage 3A, B, and C disease by the HACC7 criteria to get either dobrafenib and trametinib at standard doses for one year versus two match placebos. And of course, the primary endpoint was relapse-free survival. And this study was clearly positive uh, in looking at three-year, four-year, five-year relapse-free survival. Very impressive. It looks like there's a plateau at about 50% just past five years. So the median RFS is going to be beyond five years. Again, very impressive data. Clear superiority to placebo, a 16 percentage point absolute difference in five years with a curve that splits at the first evaluation and stays significantly apart all the way through with a hazard ratio of 0.51, a 49% reduction in the risk of relapsing. And if you look at met distant metastasis-free survival, which many folks think is a surrogate for overall survival, again, very impressive benefit to dobrafenib trametinib versus placebo at five years and 11% absolute percentage point difference. Similar hazard ratio for relapse-free survival of 0.55, reflecting a 45% reduction in the risk of distant metastasis-free survival with DAP-TREM versus placebo and resected stage three melanoma. And at the first interim analysis, the relatively immature survival data also suggest a difference with a p-value of 0.0006, again, a hazard ratio of 0.57 for survival. So very impressive data 
although these data are much earlier, the data I showed you just now prior to this for relapse-free survival and distant metastasis-free survival are mature at five years. We've talked through adjuvant therapy. What about adding immunotherapy to targeted therapy? If targeted therapy works, if immunotherapy works to prolong survival and progression-free survival, and they both work as adjuvant therapy, would it be better to add them together? That's a legitimate question, and it has a background justification suggesting that when patients get BRAF-MEK inhibition over a relatively brief period of time, say six to eight weeks, you can actually upregulate expression of melanosomal antigens like MART1. You decrease cytokines like IL-6, IL-8, and IL-10, which are immunosuppressive cytokines. You increase the infiltration of T cells. If you look at the look at the immunohistochemistry pre very few CD8 T cells, post lots of T cells after BRAF inhibition, it shows for a large number of patients a significant increase in T cell infiltration with BRAF inhibition at weeks six to eight. Clonality of T cells goes up, and, and interestingly, PDL1 goes up, which might bode well for the immunogenicity of the tumor. This set the stage for the conduct of a number of trials of BRAF-MEK plus PD-1 blockade. And this is the Keynote 022 study, which combined Dibrafenib and Tremetinib with Pembrolizumab, the PD-1 blocking antibody. And initial data, unfortunately, in the suggested there wasn't a statistically significant difference that broached a barrier that needed a p-value of less than 0.01. The p-value here is borderline at 0.42, even though the hazard ratio is good, and the data as well are not reliable. With more follow-up, interestingly, the data look better with a median of 16 versus 10 months for dibrafenib, trametinib versus plus pembro versus dibrafenib, trametinib alone, with a very nice hazard ratio, although the decision was made not to pursue this based on the initial PFS data. Vemurafenib and cobimetinib have been combined with atezolizumab, the PDL1 blocking antibody, in a trial called Inspire 150. And this was a relatively large, well-powered study. And if you look at the data from Inspire 150 in terms of investigator called progression-free survival, you see an interesting late break at about seven or eight months. And then the PFS curves stay apart with a p-value of 0.02. And if you look at survival, again, a very late break beyond 12 months, but survival curves begin to break apart with a seven percentage point absolute difference and a, and a three-month difference, difference in median survival with some additivity of side effects. In terms of other PD-1 antibodies, spartalizumab is, a, is yet another PD-1 antibody, which has also been combined with dibrafenib and trametinib. And this was a randomized phase two study of spartalizumab, dibrafenib, and trametinib versus dibrafenib and trametinib alone. And if you look at the progression-free survival, again, they're different with the triple combination better than the doublet, but the p-value is borderline, and it did not meet the threshold required for success. It's 0.042. It's just not quite good enough. And if you look at the overall survival, again, the curves at two years are very close, only a few percentage points apart. So it was not clear that the addition of spartalizumab was ad really added anything in terms of efficacy to dibrafenib and trametinib. 
Currently, there's a starboard trial going on, and this is encarafenib and binimetinib with pembrolizumab, which after an open-label safety lead-in and phase two study at two dose levels of encobini with pembrolizumab, there'll be a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three study. It'll be encarafenib and binimetinib plus pembro versus placebo plus pembro. And check out the idea that this is now not being compared to BRAF-MEC, it's being compared to pembrolizumab which frankly, on average, will have a 36-month median survival, whereas the best BRAF-MAC median survivals are anywhere between 25 and 32 months. So I think the safest or the best comparison is the Pembro alone, and I like that. Now, what considerations do we have for selecting patients to be able to sequence their therapy? Again, if you look at the NCCN guidelines, um, the top categories go to single-agent PD-1 blockade, ipinevo, or BRAF-MEC targeted therapy. Down the list are the category 2B recommendations, and that's where you get bemorafenib, cobimetinib with atezolizumab from Impower 150, and dibrafenib, trametinib with pembrolizumab, so still hanging in there. In terms of second-line therapy, it's very similar, but you begin to expand your repertoire. You look at ipilimumab with TVEC, cytotoxic agents, larotrectinib if you're intract fused, binimetinib for NRAS mutated melanoma. Then the question becomes, you have all these potential options, what should you start first? Should you start BRAF-MEC inhibition first, or should you start ipinevo first? Well, um, if you look at some of the data that have been published, Doug Johnson, it's now a couple of years ago, if you look at anti-PD-1 alone, BRAF inhibitor, not a lot of difference in terms of overall survival. But if you look at the triple combination, it looks fairly impressive. Again, that's BRAF inhibitor plus anti-PD-1, and that's BRAF then anti-PD-1. If you look at anti-PD-1 then BRAF, it actually looks like it's a worse outcome. And again, that's an open question which will be answered in a randomized trial, which is a phase three study of DAPTREM. And then if you progress, you get ipinevo versus ipinevo, and then you get DAPTREM if you progress. I think a press release came out suggesting that that trial has been stopped prematurely before even accruing all of its patients. And again, it showed that you were better off getting ipinevo first and then getting DAPTREM second rather than the other way around. And that's been pretty much confirmed in the updated data from the SECOMBIT trial, which, which stands for sequential combo immunoin-targeted therapy. Again, that's encarafenib, binimetinib versus ipilimumab, bolimab. And again, there's also been another sequencing study, which was cobimetinib, bemorafenib. Then you go to atezo versus atezo. Then you go to cobimetinib, bemorafenib. Now, not all those trials have matured. The SECOMBIT trial, which was the second trial that I described, shows that in terms of progression-free survival, things are very close. But we think that RMC uh, looks rather encouraging. But if you look at the updated data, the best data will end up coming from arm A. So the initial data are shown with less than two years of follow-up. There's been more than three and a half years of follow-up, and those data were just presented at ESMO. And it says that arm A, which is you go first ipinevo, then uh, BRAF-MEC probably is going to end up being superior. 
Now, what about non-V600 mutations? I told you the vast majority of mutations in the BRAF molecule were at the 600 or 601 amino acid. Well, there are other mutations. There's K601E, there's L597Q, there's G469A, there are BRAF fusions, there's V600R, D, M, and G, and it's predicted that they might be susceptible to BRAF MEK inhibition, and very few people have actually tested that. And that was tested in a study that was published a couple of years back in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and it was over 100 patients who had non-V600 ERK mutations, which are the most common ones. And it had actually a modest number of non-V600, and the majority were V600 KDR. You also have kinase-activating mutations, that's L597 and K601. Then there are these so-called kinase-dead mutations or kinase-impaired mutations. And that's A598, D594, and G593, as you can tell, all in the same area. In looking at BRAF-MEK activity, um, there's very little activity in these non-traditional BRAF-mutated patients to just single-agent BRAF. Single-agent MEK inhibitor is modest, but BRAF-MEK does have activity in the non-traditional um, uh, mutated BRAF, KDNR, and also L597. When it comes to the fusion BRAF, that's probably only going to be MEK inhibition. BRAF inhibition probably won't touch that. And again, BRAF-MEK fusions are very interesting. It's a surprisingly common phenomenon that fuses the kinase domain of BRAF with the five prime end of another gene. And again, the kinase becomes constitutively activated and the expression is, quote, controlled, unquote, by the promoter of the fusion partner. And again, not uncommon. And um, there's evidence that MEK inhibition should have some impact on this. This is preclinical work, and now it's been subjected to anecdotal clinical attempts. This is a uh, anecdotal case published from Australia by Alex Menzies. It shows a patient with previously treated melanoma who had a BRAF fusion. And again, the fusion was in BRAF intron 10, and the patient got trametinib, MEK inhibitor, and they actually did very well. Real shrinkage of disease by week six. Now, an important topic, of course, is identifying, assessing, and managing adverse events from these targeted therapies. We've heard a lot about immune-related adverse events from checkpoint inhibitors, but the targeted therapies have their own spectrum of side effects. Again, sort of is a compilation of dabrafenib, trametinib, vemcobi from uh, so it's COMBI-D and COMBI-V for dabtrem, and it's cobrim from vemerafenib, cobrametinib. If you put them all together, the three most uh, the three studies with the longest follow-up and the largest number of patients, you see that photosensitivity is a big deal with Vemcovi, but pyrexia chills is much more of a deal with dabrafenib and trametinib. And if you look at increased AST, it probably is a little higher with vemerafenib. And there are a number of other issues like headache, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, alopecia, hyperkeratosis. And then the cutaneous squamous cell cancers or keratoacanthomas, which are probably not uncommon in either dabrafenib, trametinib, or vemerafenib, cobametinib, but would be much more common with single-agent BRAF inhibitor. As you might expect, the cutaneous toxicity of these drugs can be pretty profound. The cutaneous toxicities of the BRAF inhibitor are often a cutaneous maculopapular rash. You can definitely get photosensitivity, and having practiced in Florida, I assure you that's a big deal. You get palmar plantar erythrodysesthesia, which you see with some chemotherapy drugs. 
And these little caretoid canthomas, which are these annoying little things that appear on the sun-damaged areas of face and upper body and arms, and they look like little volcanoes, but those are early squamous cancers, and you can see squamous cancers too. You can also, with the MEK inhibitor, see this classic acneform pustular rash. You can see fissures on the palms and the soles, which are really painful, and paronychia and nail dystrophy. And again, that's extremely annoying. The management of these side effects, well, if you have hand-foot syndrome, you use keratolytic agents. That's uh, very time-honored, or thick moisturizers like petroleum jelly. For the photosensitivity, you gotta protect yourself and use broad-spectrum sunscreens. For uh, the rashes, we usually use topical oral steroids and oral antihistamines. For MEK, it's either steroids or the use of topical antibiotics if it's that acne form rash. And lastly, you can use tretinoic acid. A MEK-associated toxicity that can be extremely disturbing to patients are the retinal disturbances, serous retinopathy, which can certainly occur with BRAC-MEK combinations due to the MEK drug. And if you look at the ultrasound, you can see how the retina is lifted off its normal layers. Very impressive. And then you stop the treatment, it just goes away and patients go back to normal. With dabrafenib trametinib, you get this classic pyrexia fatigue syndrome, and that can be very annoying. It can be morbid. It usually occurs in the first one to two months of therapy. It can last nine days in the beginning and four to five days subsequently. There's no association with clinical benefit in spite of the urban legend that you've heard about. And you might get symptoms of fatigue with no fever. You might get fever with fatigue. And the way you handle it is you withhold the drugs. If the pyrexia is uncomplicated without symptoms, you don't need to go doing a full fever workup, and you stop the drug, sometimes you give them a medical dose pack, sometimes you don't, but you restart drugs without dose modification, and sometimes you give five milligrams or 10 milligrams of steroids, hopefully every other day, as prophylaxis, and that allows patients to get through the regimen. Um, you may have symptoms without fever, it may just present as fatigue, but usually fever is the sine qua non. In terms of surveillance recommendations for BRECMEC combinations to uh, accommodate cardiomyopathy, which is a potential toxicity, you should probably do an ultrasound at baseline. And I repeat one at two to three months. I don't keep repeating them. I get an EKG at baseline two weeks later, and then eight to 12 weeks later. CK elevations, you monitor with CPK. Dermatologic toxicity. I have all my patients see a dermatologist at least every three to six months. And you have to be on the lookout for the squamous cancers and the keratoacanthomas, and they should be removed. And finally, you need to have your favorite ophthalmologist deal with retinal vein occlusion, uveitis, and central serous retinopathy. These special considerations really relate to increased toxicity, which in my view is additive for the triplet, which combines combination targeted therapy and immunotherapy, just compared to the doublet. So what are the key takeaways here? BRAF-MEK drugs can achieve long-term survival plateaus in patients with metastatic melanoma. Triple therapy has superior progression-free survival versus the doublet. Atezovemcovi compared to Vemcovi alone looks better. Embrodabtrem compared to Dabtrem was clearly better, although it had a very high bar to meet and didn't meet it. The side effects of BRAF-MEK combinations are complex to manage, but unlikely to have a permanent impact on patients' health and well-being. Now, 
Let's talk about a virtual case from our virtual case clinic. A 70-year-old woman had a primary melanoma of the right arm diagnosed two years ago, Clark's level 4, 4.2 millimeter breast blood depth, ulcerated with six mitoses per millimeter squared. After a wide local excision and a surprising negative sentinel lymph node biopsy from the right axilla, the patient declined going on a clinical trial and was simply observed. In the past month, the patient began to feel a mass in the right axilla. She was referred by her primary care doc to a surgeon who palpated a five centimeter right axillary mass. Fine needle aspirate was positive for S100 positive melanin positive SOX10 positive melanoma. The patient had PET CT scans, which suggested that there were multiple right axillary and subpectoral nodes that were enlarged and also had an abnormal SUV. Molecular testing showed that the patient's tumor had the BRAF B600K mutation. What would you advise in this case? Surgery, neoadjuvant dibrafinib and trimethyl, neoadjuvant pembro, neoadjuvant pnebo. The surgeon initially thought that the tumor would potentially be resectable with surgery, but there were concerns about the extent of the adenopathy in the chest wall. The patient who was then referred to a medical oncologist who proposed neoadjuvant epinevo to facilitate subsequent surgery and provide prognostic data because the level of pathologic remission in the treated specimen would tell you prognosis. The patient was started on intravenous nivolumab at three per kilo and ipilimumab at one per kilo, three weeks for two cycles. After two weeks, the patient complained of an itchy rash on the abdomen and thighs. The rash was treated with topical steroids and diphenhydramine at night to allow sleep, and the ipinevo were continued for a second cycle with a clear-cut reduction in the size of the mass by week four. At week five, after two cycles of treatment, the patient complained of a fever, temp to 101.4 at PT. After speaking to the oncologist, the patient was seen that day in the clinic. Her exam was unrevealing with no evidence of infection. Blood cultures were taken, CBC, chem panel, results were normal, and the patient was tacky and hyperreflexic. TSH was 0.04, T4 was 13 mics per deciliter. The fever was thought to be due to hyperthyroidism, which is what these values are consistent with. 0.04 TSH is very low. T4 of 13 is clearly abnormal. The patient was placed on non-steroidal agents twice daily and a beta blocker with resolution of fever after 24 hours. The patient felt much better and did well for another two weeks and then had repeat thyroid function tests showing that the T4 had dropped to 0.4 and the TSH was now elevated. What do you do now? The patient felt quite weak, although she was afebrile, and was told to stop taking the beta blocker that she had been given for her hyperthyroidism. An ACTH and cortisol were drawn that afternoon, and the cortisol returned as normal, which gave the investigator the chance to start levothyroxine at 75 mics daily orally. You generally don't want to give Synthroid to someone whose ACTH and cortisol levels are unknown, because you might have a panhypopit patient, and you might give Synthroid and precipitate a Addisonian crisis. The patient did well for the next week after starting levothyroxine at 75 mics per day. She had a reevaluation set of scans at week seven. The mast was slightly decreased in size on scanning with some heterogeneity in the contrast update. 
a PET CT scan showed some resolution of abnormal uptake in pectoral nodes, but continued uptake in the right axillary mass. The patient was subsequently referred to surgery for right axillary and subpectoral node dissection. At surgery, there were enlarged nodes noted with pigment present in the low axilla subpectoral region and one predominant mass of matted nodes of four centimeters in the axilla. Pathology ultimately showed less than 50% regression in the receptive axillary lymph node and in the subpectoral nodes, 90% necrosis was seen and lots of pigment-laden macrophages. So the question is, what do you do now? Continue the PD-1 blockade alone? Give Dabtrem for an additional 44 weeks? Give Ipinevo every three weeks for a year? Give Pembro alone for an additional 44 weeks? Keeping in mind that you had a very modest level of necrosis. The medical oncologist elected to place this BRAF mutated patient on 44 additional weeks of dabrafenib and trametinib to complete a year of treatment given the lack of sufficient pathologic response in the axillotibia therapy. The patient really didn't have much of a response. So continuing with immunotherapy would not have been sensible, and I applaud the decision to go with the brafenib and trametinib adjuvant therapy. At week eight of the 44 planned weeks, the patient had a temp of 104, patient was then started on a medrol dose pack with resolution of fevers by 48 hours, but after restarting the medicines, the fevers and the fatigue again returned as the methylprednisolone was finished. The patients had the medicines held, prednisone was started at 10 milligrams every other day, and the fevers abated within a week, and dabrafenib and trametinib were restarted with continuation of the every other day prednisone. The patient managed to finish the additional 44 weeks of BRAF drugs and PET-CT scans done every three months during therapy showed no evidence of disease. Two years and three months after finishing therapy, while on every six-month follow-up, the patient complained of a growing mass on the scalp. The results of this finely lacerate of the mass were positive for metastatic melanoma. MRI of the brain and PET-CT scan showed uptake in the scalp lesion with an SUV of 18 and multiple liver metastases. Biopsy of a liver lesion was positive for melanoma. What would you do now? Restart epinevo at full doses. Restart DAP only because of the fevers. Start Pembro. Restart DAP trem for four or seven days and then advance as tolerated. The liver biopsy specimen had the BRAF D600K mutation and the patient was eventually restarted on DAP trem for four or seven days due to the previous fevers. At week four, the patient was without fevers and was advanced to a seven-day-a-week regimen. At eight weeks, there was significant regression, and the patient is at a near CR at week 16, continues on treatment, and has a performance status, zero. That's the end of our case, and I just want to thank you and thank you all for participating in this activity, which was, again, optimizing treatment selection and side effect management in BRAP mutant melanoma. Thank you very much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.